We're going to be starting in verse 27 this morning. But I also want to let you in on a couple other things. Uh, We, in January, had a starting point class, a three-week starting point class, where we had really our best turnout, our our, our best class in recent memory. About 25 or 30 people were involved in that in January. And so we've been following up with them, doing some membership interviews. And typically what we do when it comes time to install members is we have a single Sunday, and people get up and share their testimonies and uh, just kind of profess Christ by statement or by baptism. Uh, But this time, since there's so many families, so many couples involved in that, we're going to stretch that out over about a month of Sundays. So beginning in February, beginning on February 22nd, which is next week, continuing through March 22nd, we're going to have a couple of testimonies every Sunday. So just be ready for that. That's a huge blessing to be able to hear people get up here and just profess their faith in Jesus Christ, share their story. Uh, So that begins next week, next Sunday, and then on March 29th, Palm Sunday, we're having a combined service, and that day we'll install all those members that have shared their testimonies and professed faith in Christ before you, their new church family. So just some cool things on the horizon uh, as we head into late February and through uh, the month of March as we are quickly now uh, approaching Easter, which Easter, I believe, is April 6th, so... Anyway, all right, let's get into what we're getting into today, the end of Mark chapter 11. Now, you've probably stood in a really long security line at the airport, right? You know, you stand there and you're fumbling with your baggie of toiletries and you watch as children and grandmothers walk through metal detectors. You watch as war veterans get the pat-down search. You watch as moms get their shampoos confiscated, all of that stuff. And let's just suppose that one day I showed up at a busy airport and I made my way to the security checkpoint. I would not be wearing a TSA uniform. I would not have the appropriate badge or clearance. But I show up and I just decide to put an end to the insanity. I start upsetting the whole operation. I push aside the metal detector. I shut down the conveyor belt. I tell people they can keep their shoes on. I allow grandmothers to hang on to their fingernail clippers. I've had mine confiscated. I don't know about you. But let's, just, let's say I just spend the morning just pushing aside the TSA agents so that all the weary passengers could just come through and get on their plane without all the demoralizing, undignified antics that airport security has somehow convinced us is acceptable. Let's suppose I did that. My efforts probably would not last very long. At some point, some very hostile Homeland Security officers would show up. They would ask me who I am. They, they would ask me why I think I have the right to do what I'm doing. And most likely, they would handcuff me, haul me away, and throw the book at me. Multiply the audacity of a scene like that. Multiply it by about a thousand. And that's what you have when Jesus entered the temple and began to turn over the tables and drive out the money changers. His actions, they put an end to the whole insane, exploitive operation that was going on in the temple. And he took those actions as one with the authority to take them. You remember two weeks ago, I said that when Jesus entered, the Jer- entered Jerusalem for his final week, He boldly entered as Israel's king. He was no longer trying to suppress his popularity. He was fully disclosing his identity as Israel's Messiah. No longer was there a need to keep quiet. 
he had arranged the whole scene so that everyone would see him as God's anointed. Everything about his entry pointed to the scriptures. Zechariah 9.9 says Israel's king would come to them riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's just how Jesus entered. His entry as king corresponded perfectly with Daniel 9, verses 24 and 25. That anointed one at a certain time, after a certain number of weeks, would come and he would bring everlasting righteousness to his people. Jesus' entry itself was that of a conquering king. People waved palm branches signifying their liberation. Many threw down their, their outer coats for him to walk upon, signifying their submission to Jesus' kingship and authority over them. The king was coming to the city. The next day, as he made his way back into the city, he prophetically cursed a fig tree. He stated in very certain terms that that the tree would never bear fruit again, that it was finished. And when they passed by the next day, that tree was withered to the core. His prophetic judgment was absolutely accurate. And then when he entered the temple... He did so as one assuming the authority of high priest. He took over the massive temple complex. He reclaimed it, put an end to all its shady business operations, halted its casual traffic flow, and reminded all those in the temple that it was to be a place where the nations could come and pray, where all could come and encounter the presence of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, of Israel. And his cleansing then of the temple, it wasn't just a criticism of the business practices going on there. It was an indictment on the high priest himself. Jesus' actions, they pointed straight at the high priest and said, you're not in charge anymore, I am. So if you follow the flow of these stories in chapter 11, the first three major events in Mark's Passion Week account you see that Jesus reveals himself to be prophet. He cursed the fig tree and it came to pass. Priest, he took over operations in the temple. And king, he entered the city as Israel's royal Messiah. Prophet, priest, king. The offices of our Lord on display in Mark 11. And so we arrive then at the end of the chapter. And we arrive there at a confrontation between Jesus and representatives from a a group called the Sanhedrin. So let's start there in verse 27 together. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, 
neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Before I get into the outline, I want us to pay attention to verse 27, because verse 27 sets the scene for us. Mark does a good job of setting the scene, almost, almost every scene as he lays it out in his book. I want you to get this picture. It's the temple. And the temple, again, as I said last week or two weeks ago, is a massive complex. It's a sprawling 35-acre complex, huge courtyard. And Jesus is just walking around in the temple, a very rabbinic way to teach. You move around, your disciples follow you as you give instruction. He's walking through, milling around with huge crowds. Again, Jerusalem has probably swelled to two, three million people for the Passover celebration. They all now have this heightened degree of excitement because they've just experienced what Jesus had done the day before. So he's moving through the temple. The other writers tell us he was walking everywhere through the colonnades and the porches, all throughout the courtyards. And I mention all this about the setting, about what he's doing, because I want to drive home that I believe on this day, this is his temple. For this one day, it belonged to him. It was his classroom, his pulpit. It was God's house on this day. And on this one day, the truth would ring in the courtyards of that temple where truth hadn't rung for hundreds of years. Luke chapter 20, the parallel passage to this one, Luke says that Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. The truth reigned in the temple on this day. And as he's doing this, our text says that three categories of people came to him. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And what you need to know is that this delegation here coming to Jesus is made up of the most important men in the nation of Israel. This is like the joint chiefs of staff or the president's cabinet or the nine justices of the Supreme Court all rolled into one. That's who's come to Jesus. Who were the chief priests? Well, there were 24 courses of priests who took turns serving in Jerusalem's temple throughout the year. Those were the chief priests. And it's written that at Passover, all of those chief priests were in Jerusalem. This is their big event. This is their Super Bowl. And so the chief priests were the upper echelon from among the priests. And there's a delegation of them that's a part of this group coming to Jesus. Who were the scribes? These were the scholars. These were the experts in the scriptures. It was their duty to hand copy the scriptures and the law. This is why they're referred to as teachers of the law. Nobody knew the law. Nobody knew the Old Testament scriptures better than the scribes. They were the expert theologians. And then there were the elders. Who were the elders? These were the the representatives of the major tribes and families of Israel. So these were not a kind of ecclesiastical leadership like what we see described for the New Testament church. These are tribal leaders. And together, these three groups comprised the Sanhedrin. If you've read the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels, you've heard that word Sanhedrin, which again is is sort of the supreme court of Israel. There were 70 members of that body, plus their president, who was the high priest, so 71 members. And this crew that confronted Jesus, it probably wasn't the entire Sanhedrin, all 71 of them, 
But it was a, a delegation sent from the Sanhedrin. And though the Sanhedrin had no real political power, they were sort of a go-between between the people and the Roman authorities, they did have a tremendous amount of functional power because they were in charge of religious life. And everything sort of swirled around religious life in this day and age. So Jesus, he had had many, many run-ins with the Pharisees and with the scribes over the three years that he did ministry. We've talked about a lot of those run-ins as we've walked through the book of Mark this last year. But this, this is his first encounter with the Sanhedrin, this august body based there in Jerusalem. And what is involved here in this encounter are a couple of questions and a couple of answers. That's your outline couple of questions and a couple of answers. Let's look at the questions first. This group representing the Sanhedrin comes to Jesus with a core question. It's two questions, actually. The first, by what authority are you doing these things? These things being taking over the temple, overturning its tables, driving out the money changers, cursing fig trees, you wanted to go back a few more days, if you've read John's gospel, Jesus has just read, or just, excuse me, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. That would have occurred just two miles away from where they're standing there at the temple. Lots of things Jesus is, redu- is doing that require authority. And from the very outset of the book of Mark, the primary word associated with Jesus' ministry is authority. He taught with authority. He exercised authority over the realm of nature and disease and social taboos and religious regulations. If anything, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been revealed as supremely and absolutely authoritative. That's the picture we get of Jesus. And so it all comes to a head here. The core question to be asking Jesus concerns his authority. The answer to that question is going to get straight to the heart of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And by asking, by what authority? They're really saying, what kind of authority is it that you have? What kind? Reminds me of the scribes in Galilee. They're accusing Jesus of performing his miracles in the power of Beelzebul. They thought his power was satanic. That's what kind they thought it was. Which is why they rephrased the question in the second half of verse 28. Who gave you this authority? Nobody comes in here on their own and does what you have done. Someone had to empower you. Who is it? What kind is it? And notice, they're not denying that Jesus has authority. Only a fool would do that. He's done way too much. It's entirely evident to everyone in Israel that Jesus has authority. That's not even to be argued. They simply want him to say where he got it. And what I shouldn't have to tell you is they're trying to trap him. They want him to speak blasphemy so that they can kill him. When they ask who gave you your authority, they're not expecting him to give rabbinical credentials They know that he has not gone to any school or gone through any ordination process. They're begging him to say, my authority comes directly from God. Because if he would make that statement, 
they would take it and they would spin it as blasphemy and blasphemy is something that they could kill him for. But Jesus is too wise for that. And so we go from their core question to his clever question. His clever question, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says to them, I'll ask you one question. It's a very typical rabbinical way to teach. Answer a question with a question. I'll ask you one question and you answer me and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. This is a plain and matter-of-fact offer that Jesus brings to them. I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer the question I ask you, I'll answer the question you've asked me. Here's Jesus' question. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. So really, what, what he's talking about here is all of John's ministry. John's preaching, his teaching, his calling of the people to preparedness and repentance through baptism. Most importantly, John's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. John's baptism of Jesus as a coronation of Jesus as the king over Israel. Was all that from heaven? Which is another way of saying, was it from God or was it from man? Was John self-appointed or did God send him? Tell me, answer me, Jesus said. You see, they've questioned Jesus' authority. Who was he to come in and turn over the tables in the temple? Who was he to walk through its colonnades teaching good news that centered upon his person and his work? Who was he to assume the role of high priest? But what Jesus has cleverly done here is he's flipped the script on them. They're questioning his authority, but he's really questioning theirs. And this is the question that Jesus asks when he comes into anyone's life. Who's got authority? Do you have authority? Or does Jesus have authority? Are you going to keep your grip on authority? Or are you going to give your authority over to Jesus? I talked about having these membership interviews over the last couple of weeks, and those will continue into the next couple of weeks as well. And I had just a, a great interview. All of them have been great, but one one this week, it was particularly beautiful when a gentleman just shared with me his testimony, and he, and he talked about his story, his journey of faith, and him coming to a point where he told Jesus, he said, I don't want to run my life anymore. I want you to take control over it. I want you to do whatever you want to do with me. It was a beautiful expression of him getting rid of his authority, letting go of his authority, and giving all authority to Jesus, the authority that Jesus rightly had anyway. Beautiful testimony. And this is the question confronting you today. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, it doesn't seem like that question confronts you. That seems a little obtuse, actually. But the heart of it is this. Did God send John to be the forerunner who prepared the way for Jesus or not? Because if God sent John to make way for Jesus, then the conclusion is that God also sent Jesus. You see the immense implications of that question? The question confronting everyone who's ever lived is this very question. Is Jesus Christ from man or from heaven? Is the New Testament from man or from heaven? Did God really come from heaven and die for us? Or was the cross just a simple event in human history like the murder of Julius Caesar or the Battle of Waterloo? 
If so, then it has no authority over my life whatsoever. None. It demands nothing from me. The world's full of religions. We don't believe they are all from heaven, so we disregard them. They have no authority. The life of Christ, however, the life of Christ, there is an authority to his life that demands a response. The life of Christ is either the story of God becoming flesh, living among man, living a righteous life on our behalf, dying a heinous death in our place, rising again three days after death and promising that he'll come again to take us into eternity with him. It's either that or it's the biggest sham of all time. You can't really have your feet in both of those camps. And if it is indeed from heaven, meaning from God, fathom with me for a second the kind of authority truth like that wields over your life. If Jesus is who he said he was, did what he said he did, and these words in this Bible are actually his words, you have to respond. You have to. You either choose to submit to it, or you boldly rebel against it. Those are the questions in this text. One set of questions intended to trap Jesus, and then his responding question, which is in itself an answer. So let's see how the Sanhedrin responds to Jesus. Move to that answer section there, second half. Verses 31 through the first part of verse 33. Before we get to the Sanhedrin's actual answer to Jesus' question, Mark helps us understand how they process their response. They get a little huddle going. Verse 31, they begin dialoguing among themselves. Debating is what the original word really means. Saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him when John said, I'm the Messiah? So we can't say that. We can't say he's from heaven or the whole plan to kill him is ruined. But verse 32, shall we say from men? And here Mark fills in the gap for us, explaining why saying John was from man was also a non-option for the Sanhedrin. It's a non-option because they were afraid of the people. Luke 20, verse 6, tells us specifically what they feared Luke 20, verse 6, the Sanhedrin said, All the people will, if we say John's for man, all the people will stone us to death. That was the regard for John, pretty high regard. So you understand their dilemma. What are they going to do? They can't concede that he's from God, because then they'd have no grounds for accusing him of blasphemy. On top of that, the praise of the people was everything to them. It was absolutely everything. Power and prestige and privilege and honor. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues. They desired the high places in the banquets. They, they wanted to be given titles of, of respect and honor, re- recognized in, in public as holy and lofty and elevated men. So if they say John is from men, just the opposite would happen to them. They're stuck. In chess, if you play the game of chess, you call this a fork. Where no matter what you do, you're going to lose a piece. The Sanhedrin are facing a fork. If they say John's ministry is from God, then they have to embrace Jesus, and that they cannot do. If they say it's from men, 
they're liable to get stoned to death. And so they're reduced to the worst possible thing that can happen to those with spiritual and intellectual pride. They're forced to say in verse 32, we don't know. That must have come out hard. How'd they ever spit that out? We don't know. So much for their self-proclaimed omniscience. The know-it-alls don't know. But again, it goes back to what I said earlier. They never had any interest in knowing the truth, ever. It wasn't that they didn't know, it was that they didn't want to answer. So they delivered this cowardly non-answer. Jesus has said very simply, answer me, I'll answer you. They failed. They didn't answer. So then Jesus answers them in kind. He says, verse 33, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And what you have to understand about that response is that Jesus isn't just being elusive. This isn't a a cat and mouse sort of game here. This is actually judgment that Jesus is giving them. Jesus' response is a condemnation of the Sanhedrin. He's not just being consistent with his original statement, answer me and I'll answer you. He's being consistent with everything he's done since he entered Jerusalem. Remember, he, he cursed the fig tree as an analogy for the destruction of the temple. He cleansed the temple as an action against the temple and all who provided it leadership. He provides no answer to those in authority as a condemnation against their twisted pseudo-authority. Jesus' refusal to answer them implies that he stands not under their authority, but over them. He's their righteous judge. And so here's the practical thrust of what's going on here. To those unwilling to commit themselves, Jesus refuses to commit himself. Those who continually and brazenly suppress the truth and exchange it for a lie, Jesus will not disclose his truth to them. Contrast that against another statement that Jesus made. Another statement Jesus made. He said, if there is is faith in Israel as small as a mustard seed, truly I say to you, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it will be so. The smallest degree of faith is greeted by Jesus with these words, truly I say to you. That's all it takes to get a word from Jesus, just a shred of faith. But in the face of calculated unbelief, Jesus responds, I have nothing to say to you. You don't ever want to be in a position where Jesus says, I'm finished communicating with you. You don't want that. But that's what's on display here. Jesus saying, I'm done, I'm done. I said all I'm going to say, you're not entitled to any further revelation. He would no longer cast his pearls before swine. Their blind dishonesty revealed their hearts. It's over for them. They're damned. Because when you reject the light, ultimately the light goes out. Scripture warns us about this again and again, doesn't it? Today is the day, it says. Today. Believe while the light is here, for the time will come when the light is gone. 
It says, my spirit will not always strive with men. It's going to fade. It's going to go away. Again and again, Scripture warns that when we repeatedly turn ourselves away from revelation, revelation eventually turns itself away from us. A blinding of the eyes, a hardening of the heart, unbelief will fully calcify in our lives. This is the most tragic situation that could have ever happened. To have the Son of God in your presence, to have trailed him and tracked him for three years as these scribes and Pharisees did, and in the very end, the sentence falls, I have nothing more to say to you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you don't want your life to get to that point. If you've, if you've become comfortable rejecting Jesus Christ, stonewalling the, the salvation that he offers, you, you do that over time, you don't ever know when the Lord will just say, I'm through with your willful unbelief. I'm through. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you hear the truth of the gospel, and as we sing, you, you see those, those glorious truths about his death and his, his burial and his resurrection and his sacrifice in your place. And as we talk through his person and work, if you understand your need for a Savior because you're a great sinner, you need to know that it is Jesus who is that Savior. And there needs to be nothing holding you back to say, I give you all authority over my life. I've tried to do my life by myself. I've tried to do my life on my own terms. It's gotten me really nowhere. I not only need your help, I need your redemption. I need your salvation for my sin. It doesn't take any jumping through any great hoops or any great instrumentation today. You simply lay down your life and you cling to the life of Jesus. This here... This is the beginning of, of seven conflict stories with Jesus and members of the Sanhedrin. The whole next chapter, chapter 12, is devoted to Jesus' judgment of Israel's unbelieving leadership. It's sobering stuff. But, if, but I think what we then ask, if you're a believer in Christ today, if you haven't been rejecting Christ, if you're a believer in Christ today, how do you go about applying what's here in this text? What's here for you? Because you love Jesus. You want to be closer to Jesus. You want him to reveal more of himself to you. What, what can you take away from this account? I got one thing. Put more confidence in what's revealed right here than anything else in your life. You remember Jesus gave his apostles his authority. Remember that? Authority to preach and teach and cast out demons and heal people. He gave that to the apostles. And then as they did that work, as they preached, men like Mark wrote their words. And so we have the sum of their apostolic teaching in these 27 books of the New Testament. The authority of Jesus given to the apostles revealed in these pages of Scripture. So we have God's authoritative words, his answers, and they're available to you for you to know, for you to hide in your heart, for you to share with others.
And when you share it with others, you can do so with confidence. Why? Because the authority of Jesus is directly related to the words of this book. The same authority he had to heal and cleanse the temple and judge the Sanhedrin, they, they come through the inspired word of God. Therefore, you actually speak authoritatively when you speak Scripture. Sometimes when you provide Scripture as, as an answer, people say to you, man, where do you get the authority to say these things? How could you possibly be so dogmatic? You think you're right about everything. How can you say that? Who do you think you are? Your answer should be, I'm just quoting God. I'm not the authority. I don't have any authority. My, my education gives me no authority. My intellectual abilities give me no authority. My friends who surround me give me no authority. I'm not able to say, truly I say unto you, but I can say, truly God says. I can say that my whole life long, as long as what I say is from his word. We talk about lives that matter in this world. With all the chaos and bad ideas and misrepresentations that float around the world, here we are as beacons of, of truth and grace. We can say, God hath said. The most important thing that can happen in the world is people hearing the truth. And the place they're going to hear it is through the instruments in which God has given his spirit and his truth. That's us. That's you and me. That's his church. That's those holding up this word, saying it's inspired, it's authoritative, it's infallible. Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2 and verse 15, and he said, These things I give you to speak with all authority, and let no one disregard you. These things. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, I tell you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All authority. It's on our side. Not because it's us versus them, but because we have something solid to rest upon. G.K. Chesterton, he was a an English newspaper writer in the first part of the 20th century. He was known for his wit and his wisdom. And open-mindedness was creeping into the British Empire at that time. And Chesterton was all for open-mindedness. He didn't see necessarily anything wrong with it, being open to the world of ideas. But he said, the reason for an open mind is the same reason you have an open mouth, to find something solid to close it on. This is the solid to close it on. God's word. The very authoritative words of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for what we find here in your word today. And we just confess together as a church family that you have all authority. You have authority over our church we submit everything here to you. We say, lead us, guide us, direct us. We want to look to your word and let, us take us, let it take us. 
where you want us to go. Lord, and individually, as people here, as people that, that tend to maybe reach back and try to cling to that, that authority from time to time, Lord, I pray that you would just give us great comfort in your authority over our life. And if there's someone here that has never surrendered themselves to you, never trusted in Jesus Christ to be their sin bearer and therefore the leader of their life, I pray that they would do that today, that they would come to you in repentance and faith. Thank you for this time together. Bless us as we, as we finish with a song and a blessing, Lord. Um, Lord, we thank you that we don't have to guess at what truth is. We don't have to guess what, who the authority is, but you've made it very clear. Again, thank you for this time, this place, and this people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.